So um, if you've been around, we've actually been for about three months going through Abraham, which is Genesis 12 to 25 in the Old Testament. And next week is our last one. And then after that, we, for the rest of the year, are doing a new series called Identity in Christ. If you didn't realize, our culture is fixated with one question, who am I? And uh, we just think, wow, the gospel speaks so powerfully into that space. I mean, just think about how much pressure there is upon a young human being in the Western world to be someone special, with your combination of TikTok or tattoos or unique pronouns, you know, you're a person in the making and there's pressure on you to create something awesome. What a relief that the most awesome, special being in the world comes to you and says, no, you don't need to create yourself. You get to receive yourself as a gift from me. And he affirms us in the most profound way. Uh, I can't wait for the series. And I'm um, going to be so powerful for people who've been on the road for a long time as well as people trying to make sense of Christianity. It's quite an angle in on Christianity, this idea of identity. Okay, so that's in two weeks' time, but let me get into uh, my one. So two weeks ago, I spoke on, um, my title was Relinquishment, Radical Obedience, and Their Rewards. Genesis chapter 22, verse part one. Twee, 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 part one. And um, I looked at the story, you may have heard it before. Um, Abraham has finally got his promised son, Isaac, through whom all the nations will be blessed. And God says, come up onto a mountain that I will show you the mountain of the Lord and sacrifice your son to me. And this Isaac goes with his dad. And just as his dad is about to bring the knife down, God intercepts and says, wait. And then there's a ram in the thickets. And, uh, and he comes back very excited. And, and, and God says to him, now I know that you love me and I'm gonna bless the whole world through your obedience. It's a, it's a story. And, and I spoke about relinquishment, letting go, because we hold on to things so tightly. And then I spoke about radical obedience, because God's God. So uh, he, he, he gets to tell us what to do with our, our lives. Who do you think you are to tell me what to do with my life? Uh, I'm God. Uh, okay. And then the rewards of it. But then I said, I've just done one layer on the story, we missed the whole point, and I'm going to come back in two weeks' time. Have you seen the movie Sixth Sense? If we can just have the next. Have you seen the movie The Prestige? How about Shawshank Redemption? Anybody for Shawshank Redemption? The best story of all, the best movie of all time, highest rated, 9.4 out of 10 by millions of people, and then The Usual Suspects. Got four awesome movies to watch. The top left one is terrifying in parts, so I'm not recommending it. <laughs> but uh, what makes all of these movies um, so powerful and so memorable is that you go through the whole story and it's awesome and enough in itself. And then right at the end, there's the twist. And you suddenly realize that you've missed the whole story. Something happens and you're like, oh! And then your mind flies over it and some of these movies actually just take you through a quick two-minute rerun of all the events. And you suddenly see all of the events in a new way. So these stories tell the story and it's awesome enough in itself. Then it comes to the end and it gives you the key. And then it fl you fly back to the beginning and it's as though you watch it for the first time and you see what you missed. And you walk out just like awed. And I think that's part of what makes the Bible such an awesome book. 
The Old Testament doesn't mention the name of Jesus once. You read from Genesis through to Malachi. It's an awesome story. Okay, you get stuck here and there in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. I don't recommend those books for beginners. But, but, but you get to the end, you're like, phew, yo, oh, that was pretty intense. And then you come to the New Testament, and it's, and it's the key. And you get, you get to where, where all these stories were pointing, and then you run back to Genesis, and you're like, oh, Exodus, whoa. It's just like you see it for the first time. Same thing as Sixth Sense and the Prestige. So we did Genesis 22, but we missed the whole point. And, and um, my message today, part two, is the Akedah and the cross. The Akedah is the Hebrew word for the binding, because Abraham binds Isaac to the wood that he carries up the mountain on which he would be sacrificed. The Akedah and the cross. And we're going to look at the second layer, the second layer to the story Jesus claimed that Abraham, millennia before, had been given an advanced glimpse of his own coming. John 8, Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to the coming. He saw it and he was glad. Abraham was going through something. He could even tell. All of these things were pointing somewhere and he had a hunch of what it was pointing to. His mortifying experience of of up of, of, of offering goodness that was hard of offering up his own innocent son is the most likely place he saw by a kind of future flash the event that would one day unfold when the Creator would be at the mercy of his creatures and I want to just run through the story and pick out nine places that that you missed the first time we went through it you might see it now and my prayer it's simple. God, open our eyes to see Jesus. God, open our eyes to see Jesus. So that the first thing, notice this. Like Isaac, Jesus is the one and only son. Uh, God says to Abraham in verse 1, to offer up his one and only son whom he loves. That language is pretty haunting. And it, the next time the same language is used is in the New Testament where, where God says... Jesus says, God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that those who trust in him will not perish but will have eternal life. So there's a little bit of a hint here, isn't there? God is the one and only son, the Greek word for one and only uh, monogenes, which means only begotten, unique, one of a kind. One of a kind. It's quite strange because actually Abraham had a previous son, Ishmael, but but Isaac was a one-of-a-kind son because he was a, he was a miraculous son. Uh, and uh, Jesus is a one-of-a-kind person. And, and there's a difference here. In the gospel, the Father's love is directed not just towards the Son, but the whole world. God, Abraham so loved his son, his one and only son, but when John 3.16 repeats it, it says, God so loved his, the world. <laughs> that he gave his one and only son. The father loves his son, and then he looks at you, and he looks at me, and he looks at the eight billion people almost that live on the face of the earth. He loves us so much that he's willing to give up his only son. The second thing notice is this. Like Isaac, Jesus carries the altar upon which he will be slain. Isaac carries the very word to which he will be bound. He carries it up the hill. 
on which he will be burned. Jesus carries the horizontal beam of the cross uphill to the place of his execution. And this blows my mind. My mind. In Genesis 22, it calls this place the Mount in Moriah and then calls it the Mountain of the Lord. And in the Old Testament, Mount Moriah turns out to be the place where um, some thousand years later, uh, they will build the temple in Jerusalem. And then... Fast forward another thousand years after that, the hill upon which Jesus would be crucified, just outside of Jerusalem. So Jesus is probably crucified some few hundred meters from this very place. It blows the mind, doesn't it? The mountain of the Lord. And Mount Zion, Jerusalem, is called the mountain of the Lord because it's the meeting place of God and people. It's the meeting place of God and people. There's the temple. It's in the temple that you come and you meet with God, but, but you can't just come in like that. You need to be forgiven, so there's animal sacrifices in the temple. But here's a first sacrifice, pointing towards these later sacrifices. I'll tell you what else I see in the story of Genesis 22. Like Isaac, Jesus cooperates with his father. Like Isaac, Jesus cooperates with his father. In Genesis 22, Isaac is so trusting of his father. Trust him, he never resists, he never runs away. And a future flashes to Jesus, who knows that he's going to be crucified, and he is utterly cooperative. I love the Gospel of Luke. The first, the first nine chapters, he's doing his ministry around Galilee and Israel. And then suddenly you hit Luke 9, verse 51, and it says, Jesus resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. And then the rest of the Gospel of Luke, every step he takes is one step closer towards the cross. It's like drawing him in like a magnet. He's focused on that place. Yeah, I suppose the difference is here that Isaac didn't know what was going on. He just trusted his dad. Right at the end, you, you, I think he's, putting the, he's, he's joining the dots. He's like, oh, dang, this is the story in which I die. <laughs> Jesus knows he's going to die much earlier. He cooperates completely. He knows where he's going. He's fully aware. Another connection. The gift of substitution is pivotal to both stories. The gift of substitution, that's a key word if you understand the gospel, is pivotal to both, both stories. You see, Isaac is about to have the blade fall upon him. And God intercepts and says, no, no, no. And he looks up and there is suddenly a ram like an, an adult male sheep caught in the thickets. And God says, no, rather sacrifice the ram. S sacrifice the sheep. So the sheep that God provides is the substitute that saves Isaac. And, and, then, and then Abraham calls God, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. Of course, 2,000 years later, there is no substitute <laughs> lamb for Isaac, or the true Isaac, Jesus, because Jesus is the, is the substitute lamb. Galatians 3 verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. It's speaking about his crucifixion, where the consequences of your sinfulness and my sinfulness and the sinfulness of the whole world come with their full force, like a giant uh, sewage tank poured out upon an innocent person. John Chrysostom, the church father in the 300s, he says, Christ has saved us 
by substituting himself in our place, though he was righteousness itself, God allowed him to be condemned as a sinner and to die as one under a curse, transferring to him not only the death which we owed, but our guilt as well. Jesus somehow dies in our place. And this idea of the sacrificial sheep runs through the scriptures from this point. And then it gets more and more interesting because the first story, you've got a sheep that substitutes for one person, Isaac. But then a little bit later, you've got the Israelites in bondage in Egypt and God gives them an instruction to sacrifice one lamb per family. And then they're spared. So now the sheep is not just saving one. The sheep is substituting for a family. Then the next time we read about the sacrificial lamb, it's the whole nation of the Day of Atonement where the lamb is sacrificed. The high, most high priest puts his guilt onto the lamb so for, as if transferring it. And this lamb dies for the nation. So first, the lamb dies for a person. Next time, the lamb dies for a family. Next time, the lamb dies for a nation. Then come John chapter 1, verse 29. John sees his cousin Jesus as if for the first time, and he says, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, this time, not just for a person or a family or a nation, but the whole world, you and me in his sight. Another connection, like Abraham, the heavenly father suffers, uh, only worse so. Like Abraham, the heavenly father suffers, only worse so. Though the details are sparse in the story, you can tell Abraham's heart is broken. He, you know, he's got the night to, to go through. He knows he's gonna, the next day, sacrifice his son. He couldn't have got one minute of sleep. His heart died a thousand deaths by anticipation, but in the end, it didn't actualize. He died by anticipation, but he didn't actually lose his son, but he suffered. It's a picture of the father. The father, the difference is that the suffering is actualized. God spares Isaac, but listen to this, Romans 8 verse 12, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. This is an important fact because it gives us a glimpse into the father of Jesus suffering too. We know Jesus is suffering, but we sometimes imagine that God the father is in heaven a little detached going, okay, do what you must. Jesus is taking it all. The father is removed. Some pictures even put the father as kind of it kind of enjoying it. This is, this is how theologians sometimes put it. The father is, is removed and he's like, serves him right. It's something crazy like that. But then we read this important verse, 2 Corinthians 5. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. See those words, God in Christ. God the Father and God the Spirit participate in the cross-shaped trauma of God the Son. The suffering is in God, not just in Jesus. It's in the Father, it's in the Spirit. Another insight is this. Like Isaac, Jesus suffers, only worse so. Like Isaac, Jesus suffers, only worse so. The son of Abraham was spared, while the son of God was not. Isaac, facing the prospect of his own death, is nonetheless comforted by the fact that he can look into his father's eyes 
And he knows that he's loved. He's like, Father. He's looking in the Father's eyes. He trusts his Father, even as the, as the knife is coming down. However, the way the Gospels tell the story of Jesus on the cross, it's as though for the first time in all eternity, God the Son loses the comforting sight of his Father. And he cries out the words, Father, why, why have you forsaken me? In fact, he says, God, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't use the language of Father. There's, there's, a, there's an estrangement in the time of the cross. The suffering of Jesus is worse than the suffering of Isaac. And then another connection. This offering of a life is the blessing of the world. This offering of the life is the blessing of the world. Genesis 22, God says to Abraham, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. It's as though this whole enactment by Abraham willing to sacrifice his son, now the whole world is gonna be blessed through this near sacrifice of a son. How much more the actual sacrifice of the son of God comes blessing to the whole world, unexpected as it is to us, there on that lonely hill, a mysterious barbarity upon an innocent life is actually God's method to achieve a monumental blessing for those of us who are far from innocent. On the cross, Christ sacrificed everything so that we can have everything. He was shut out from the Father's presence. Now you're welcome in. He was broken. Now you can be made whole. He was nailed down. Now you can go free. He was cursed. Now you can be blessed. He died. Now you can live forever. I've got two more points for you. Next one is sacrifice is an aspect of the way of Christ. Sacrifice is an aspect of the way of Christ. So, so on the cross, Jesus gave us salvation. Yeah? But also on the cross, Jesus showed us the way to love. On the cross, Jesus showed us the way to love. Ephesians 5 verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Walk in love. Tomorrow, walk in love. The next day, walk in love. Wednesday, walk in love on Wednesday. Thursday, remember to walk in love. Friday, walk in love. As Jesus loved us and, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Um, signal, we have a mission statement. And it's this. Stepping into the story of God and the ways of Jesus for the sake of Cape Town. God is doing something in the world. God's doing something in Cape Town. And we get to be part of it. We're stepping into that story. But we're also stepping into the ways of Jesus. This is not just a faith to be believed. This is a faith that, that, that transforms the way we live our lives. The way of the cross is the way of love. So as you follow Jesus, uh, that cross is your clue on how to love. And think how powerful that is. A life of sacrificial service, as defined by the life and the death of Jesus Christ, is not weakness. It's an alternative mode of power. A life of sacrificial service, as defined by the life and the death of Jesus Christ, is not weakness. It's an alternative mode of power. True power is best seen in a life willingly offered as sacrifice for the sake of others. 
True love is best seen in a life willingly offered as sacrifice as a sake for others. And just in case this sounds so pie in the sky, to show any sort of care for others at all, some sort of sacrifice is necessary almost every day. To be magnanimous instead of vindictive to the person who hurts you or snubs you. To stand back and let someone else share the limelight. To absorb the anger of a teenager in order to show firm guidance. To be patient with a parent who has Alzheimer's. To refrain from undermining a colleague. Uh, to give away money one would like to spend on luxuries, to give up smoking, <laughs> to bear with those who can't give up smoking. <laughs> All such things, large and small, requires sacrifice. By the way, the last paragraph, I wish I wrote it. I got it from Fleming Rutledge, the author of the book, The Crucifixion. And if ever you wanted to read a deep, profound book on the cross, that's the one I recommend. Fleming Rutledge, The Crucifixion. Took her 20 years to write. It's a masterpiece. I've got one more point for you. Like Isaac, Jesus is resurrected, only literally so. Like Isaac, Jesus is resurrected, only literally so. Where does the stricken Abraham find the fortitude to lead his son to the place of sacrifice? The answer comes in Abraham's parting words to his servants, where he says, stay here, the boy and I will go and worship, and we will return to you. Notice the word we, it doesn't say I'll return to you. Was Abraham lying? Do you just mean to master the fact that I'm going to kill the guy, you'll never see him again? No, Abraham was not trying to deceive his servants. Somewhere in the prayerful tossing and turning of the night before, Abraham must have concluded that Isaac would ultimately live. We know this because there's a New Testament verse that draws out this point. Hebrews 11 verse 9 says, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. The God who figuratively raised Isaac from the dead would later raise Jesus literally from the dead. Even this story has got a hint of the resurrection. In Revelation, John has a vision. There's a scroll that is locked. No one can open it up and he's heartbroken because the scroll has the secrets of the world, the secrets of the universe, God's secrets. And he's weeping, no one, no one can open it up. And then the, the angel says, well, there is one. And he turns around to see the line of Judah. He's looking for the line of Judah. And instead, he sees a lamb that has been slain. And it's Jesus. And all the, the throngs of heaven begin to worship the lamb who was slain. But the lamb that was slain is alive. The lamb who dies for the sins of the world rises again from the dead as definitive proof that God loves you. Because the story flips around. What does God say to Abraham when Abraham offers up his son? God says, now I know that you love me because you did not spare your son. But can you see in the gospel, we turn it around. We can say the same to the Father in heaven. Now we know that you love us because you did not spare your son. How do we know God loves us? Well, one reason is because the Bible says so. Says so. I love you because I do. Another way we know God loves us is because there's times you can feel the love. Romans 5 verse 5, God pours out his love in our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. I wish I could live in that place of feeling the love 
all the time, every day. Because I haven't found that place. You'll find little snatches of it. But I remember those times, like, don't doubt in the dark what you need to be true in the light. There'll be times when I've been overwhelmed, immersed in the love of God. And I go, okay, I know I'm not going to feel this always, so snatch the memory. And then when the darkness comes, don't doubt in the dark what you need to be true in the light. So we know God loves us because he said so. We know God loves us because there are times you can feel it. But ultimately, we know God loves us because he shows us so. Words are cheap. Feelings are fleeting. But hard proof. God loved us so much that he gave up his one and only son. You are precious to him beyond words. Can I ask you to stand up? Can we have the band on the stage? Did you catch a glimpse of Jesus? Did you catch a glimpse of Jesus in Genesis 22? Did you see him? Did you sense him? You see him there on the cross? Did you see him alive? The lamb that was slain, he's alive. You feel the love of God. Did you catch a glimpse of the mysteries of this gift of substitute? He, God takes your sin, puts it on Jesus and deals with it there. You go free. Did you see the gospel? Maybe you've seen it for the first time. Well, if you've seen it for the first time, today is the day of your salvation. Today, the day you first get it that God loves you and that Jesus died on the cross for you and Jesus is living as the Lord of the universe, that's the day of your salvation. Today might be that day for you. Okay? Is today that day for you? And for those of you who already seen this, you just needed to see it again. I'm going to just lift our voice.